welcome to Immigration Review, your weekly source for immigration case law updates and insights. I'm your host, Kevin A. Gregg, back again to review the week's presidential immigration cases, rummaging through the decisions so you don't have to. This podcast is sponsored by Kurzban, Kurzban, Tetzeli, and Pratt, also known as KKTP, a law firm where I'm also a partner. Whether you are facing an immigration obstacle, a serious injury, or a legal issue in your business, KKTP will aggressively protect your best interests. This podcast is also sponsored by DocketWise, an all-in-one immigration forms and case management solution trusted by thousands of immigration lawyers across the U.S. I really like DocketWise. It makes immigration applications easy by allowing the clients to provide information through simple online questionnaires that are shareable by text or email and available in multiple languages. Not only that, DocketWise provides a comprehensive group of case management features, including invoicing and calendaring, secure messaging, task management, and a lot more. You can learn all about DocketWise and receive a 10% discount on your subscription by heading to docketwise.com immigration review so they know we sent you. And as always, this show does not constitute legal advice and has no bias other than to keep you up to date and to enable you, my dear colleagues, to excel in court. So, without further ado, let's start the review. Happy Halloween to all you goblins, ghouls, and generally unpleasant immigration attorneys. We're heading into late fall and early winter, a magical time where the circuits seem to semi-hibernate for a couple of months before returning in the spring to feast on the petitions for review left to spawn in their absence. What's that you say? The metaphor is weird and doesn't work? Probably true. Six cases this week, and I hope you'll enjoy them. And if you haven't already, sign up for the Immigrant Justice Idaho Conference being held virtually and in person for November 4th and November 5th, this week. Really, really great panelists throughout the entire event, including my co-panelists on November 4th, Kari Hong from the Florence Immigrant and Refugee Rights Project, and Mark Barr from Lichter Immigration. I'm honored to be included. Gonna be a good time. But first, these cases. First with the first, we have James V. Garland, published by the First Circuit on October 25th, 2021. This case is about appeals and equitable tolling. Miss James is from Jamaica and appears to have entered the U.S. without authorization in 1989. She has a U.S. citizen child, but in 1999 was convicted of various drug offenses and she was imprisoned for like 20 years. DHS sought to remove her thereafter and kept her in immigration detention. Detained and without an attorney, she conceded removability. She was, after all, in the United States without authorization for all those years, and she applied for asylum and related relief. She represented herself from detention and lost. As always, the immigration judge provided her 30 calendar days to file a notice of appeal with the BIA, or by March 20, 2020, should Miss James desire. In the middle of all of that came the COVID-19 pandemic, and a state of emergency was issued in Massachusetts where Miss James was detained 10 days before her appeal deadline. She didn't deposit her notice of appeal with the prison mailbox until April 1st, 10 days late. Plus, that notice of appeal states that the deadline is actually when the BIA 
receives the appeal, which didn't happen until April 6th, because prison mail is slow. But Miss James even included a pro se motion to accept her untimely appeal. Well done, Miss James. She was then released with a bunch of other individuals due to COVID-19, albeit only because of a federal class action lawsuit documenting the incredibly dangerous conditions that immigration detention poses to everyone, ICE and the prison officials, when no one is vaccinated, as was occurring in ICE detention facilities in March and April 2020. Ms. James herself suffered from diabetes while she was detained during the COVID-19 pandemic without a vaccination, and she included this as one of the reasons for her failure to meet her appeal deadline. Plus, she was pro se. She also requested equitable tolling of that deadline. The BIA denied her motion and deemed her appeal untimely without much analysis. Ms. James timely filed a petition for review with counsel with the First Circuit, and the First Circuit remanded. First, because oil didn't argue otherwise, the First Circuit held that the Notice of Appeal Regulatory Deadline, that 30-day thing, at 8 CFR Section 1003.38b, is subject to equitable tolling. Good to know. Also good to know that the 2nd, 9th, 8th, and 10th Circuits have held, to some degree, that the regulatory deadline can be tolled. Having gotten that out of the way, the First Circuit remanded, holding that actually, the BIA erred by failing to consider whether the deadline should be told in this case. See, instead of doing so, the BIA construed Ms. James' motion to extend or toll the deadline as a motion for the BIA to simply self-certify the appeal to itself, an action that would have no deadline. The BIA then denied the motion that it kind of created, a motion which, as the BIA construed it, is conveniently, quote, a purely discretionary determination, end quote, and quote, unfettered, end quote, when it comes to the BIA's analysis. But as Ms. James actually asked the BIA to toll the deadline, rather than simply certify the appeal to itself, the BIA had to determine whether the facts of this case warranted equitable tolling. And equitable tolling does have some standards, even if they are a bit messy, unlike self-certification to the BIA. Because the BIA didn't conduct the analysis, it got reversed. This all stems from the fact that because the 30-day regulatory deadline to file a notice of appeal is a claims processing rule, quote, the BIA must conduct individualized administrative review to determine whether it will accept the late appeal, end quote. Also good to know. So the First Circuit reversed, without telling the BIA what to do regarding the tolling of the appeal deadline, stating instead that, quote, the BIA should have the first say to determine whether a pro se detainee whose filing deadline fell during the frenzied first month of COVID-19 outbreak and who raised her serious complications from her diabetes and high blood pressure is entitled to equitable tolling, end quote. If I'm a betting man, I bet Miss James gets her appeal decided. Congratulations, Trina Relmoto, Christian McLeod Ball, and Tiffany Liu of the National Immigration Litigation Alliance, and Kara Gagarin for petitioner. A bit more. I actually believe it generally beneficial to non-citizens that the BIA has authority to self-certify appeals to itself, as the BIA initially construed Ms. James's motion here. Unfortunately, and as this decision states, it appears that the prior administration amended the regulations and thereby no longer permits the BIA to self-certify appeals to itself. That amended regulation, however, like so many, is currently enjoined due to litigation. We'll see what the current administration does with all those pending regulations that are still being challenged in court. 
Also, check out this decision in the First Circuit for arguments regarding motions to terminate and other motions based on deficient NTAs. While this case is not about that issue, it does discuss what the BIA and IJ must do when confronted with claims processing rule violations, which is what the majority of circuits in the BIA have determined that deficient NTAs implicate. To my knowledge, the First Circuit has not addressed this specific issue, nor has it addressed any deficient NTA issue at all post Ms. Chavez. So check out this decision to help craft some arguments regarding the implications of violating a claims processing rule in the first. And that is James V. Garland. Next up is Vaye v. the Department of State, published by the 11th Circuit on October 26, 2021. This case is about the doctrine of consular non-reviewability. I don't usually review these, ironically enough, because there's not usually much there and they arise in district court. But I figured I'd give this one a read. For over 50 years, and as affirmed very recently in Kerry v. Din by the Supreme Court, non-citizens, or citizens really, can't sue the Department of State and federal court for, quote, review of a consular officer's decision regarding a visa application if the reason given is facially legitimate and bona fide, end quote. In practice, this doctrine essentially destroys lawsuits against the government for visa denials made by consulate officers abroad. In this case, Ms. Valle is a U.S. citizen and married Mr. Valle, who is Mexican but lived in the United States. Ms. Valle filed an I-130 petition for Mr. Valle, which USCIS approved. But because Mr. Valle entered the U.S. unlawfully, he couldn't adjust to lawful permanent resident status in the United States because he had never been inspected and admitted. But if he left the U.S. to get a visa abroad at the Mexican consulate, as required to be inspected and admitted, he'd be barred from re-entering the U.S. for 10 years, because he had lived here without status for over one year. This is the IRIRA unlawful presence catch-22 that the Obama administration tried to address, if ever so unsatisfactory, with the provisional unlawful presence I-601A waiver. Mr. Valle, like all non-citizens like him, can and did apply for that waiver with USCIS while in the United States, and USCIS approved it based on the extreme hardship his wife would suffer without him. So now Mr. Valle had the approved I-130 petition and the approved I-601A waiver in hand, and he was ready to leave the United States to go to Mexico and sit for his immigrant visa interview, which he did. But when he sat for that interview in Mexico, the consulate officer deemed him inadmissible for three reasons. Even though he had the I-601A waiver approved, the consular officer believed Mr. Valle inadmissible for having previously committed immigration fraud, previously telling officials that he was a U.S. citizen, and for having lived in the U.S. unlawfully for over one year. This last inadmissibility provision is theoretically waived by an I-601A waiver, but I don't believe consulate officers are technically bound by USAS decisions on the matter. And in any event, if a consular officer determined that Mr. Valle was inadmissible for the fraud and the false claim to citizenship reasons at the time he received the waiver, I believe the consulate officer can deem the waiver improperly obtained. So the consulate officer denied Mr. Valle's application, and Mr. Valle is now stranded in Mexico, separated from his wife, subject to a 10-year bar and two separate permanent bars to re-entering the U.S., one of which, the false claim to citizenship, can never be waived by immigration officials. What a risk consular processing can be. The consulate officer didn't get into the details of all this and instead simply checked a form stating Mr. Valle was inadmissible, as they so often do. 
The officer provided no evidence or facts supporting the finding. So Mr. Valle's U.S. citizen wife, Ms. Valle, sued in federal court. The U.S. government moved to dismiss, arguing that the doctrine of consular non-reviewability deprived the district court of subject matter jurisdiction, and additionally, that Ms. Valle's complaint failed to state a claim. 12b1 and 12b6 motions for you deep nerds out there. The federal court agreed and dismissed the case. The 11th Circuit disagreed. Sort of. First, it held that the doctrine of consular non-reviewability does not implicate subject matter jurisdiction. In essence, the court explained that federal courts get their authority to hear cases, known as subject matter jurisdiction, from the Constitution and Congress's statutes. But the doctrine of consular non-reviewability is a judicially made doctrine, albeit the Supreme Court's. Such judicially made doctrines cannot divest federal courts of subject matter jurisdiction. Only the Constitution and Congress can do that. So while it's not jurisdictional, the doctrine does implicate the merits of a lawsuit, meaning that Federal Rule of Civil Procedure 12b-6, rather than 12b-1, is the proper rule whereby federal courts can dismiss a case under the doctrine of consular non-reviewability. You'd always rather be in 12b-6 rather than 12b-1 land, because when you're in 12b-6 land, whether such a lawsuit should be dismissed under the doctrine comes down to whether the consulate officer provided a, quote, facially legitimate and bona fide, end quote, reason for denying the visa. If the officer did not do it, the glove does not fit, and the lawsuit cannot be dismissed under 12b-6. What does that mean? Well, you have to look to Din v. Carey. And not just the Din majority, which apparently only had three justices, but Justice Kennedy's concurrence, which Justice Alito joined for the necessary fifth vote, which apparently means under the Supreme Court doctrine that actually it's Justice Kennedy's concurrence that governs the holding in Din. Oh, the power that man had. Relying on Justice Kennedy's concurrence, the 11th Circuit held that a consular officer's reasons for a denial are, quote, one, facially legitimate when they cite valid statutory provisions of inadmissibility, and two, bona fide when they identify the factual predicates that exist for a visa denial, end quote. What does that mean? The first prong is pretty easy for a consular officer to meet. The officer's got a cite to the inadmissibility provision, and really the consulate officer just checks a box with the statute listed next to it. Remember, though, as the 11th Circuit states in a footnote, the consular officer does have an obligation to cite to a specific inadmissibility provision. The officer can't just cite generally to say INA Section 212A, where the real reason for inadmissibility is Section 212A2AI, for example. So there's that. But what about the second prong, the factual predicate requirement? Unfortunately for federal lawsuits, it does not require the consulate officer to identify the quote who, what, when, where, why, and how, end quote, of an inadmissibility finding. Rather, simply a citation to the inadmissibility statute will suffice, where quote, the statute provides specific factual predicates that the consular officer must find for a determination of inadmissibility, end quote. So here, for example, the false claim to citizenship notation means that as the factual predicate, the consulate officer is saying that Mr. Valle once claimed, falsely, to be a U.S. citizen. Pretty low requirement, but such is the doctrine. The 11th Circuit therefore held that the district court properly dismissed Ms. Valle's complaint because all three provisions, the immigration fraud, 
false claim to U.S. citizenship, and unlawful presence in admissibility provision relied upon by the consulate officer are, quote, statutes that detail discrete factual predicates, end quote, and therefore require no further explanation from the officer. Lots of consulate power. But all is not lost. First off, the doctrine does not apply if the consular officer acted in bad faith. Hard to prove and hard to plausibly allege with particularity as required to avoid dismissal, but the standard is there. Also, the logical corollary of the doctrine and of this decision is that there must be some inadmissibility provisions that do not, quote, detail discrete factual predicates, end quote, merely by being cited to. I don't know what those inadmissibility provisions are because the decision doesn't say, and it's not fraud, we know that, which is probably the most common reason cited to by consulate officers, but this decision provides an argument when the right inadmissibility provision case comes along. Finally, to remember when fighting your motions to dismiss on this issue, anything contrary to this decision in the Supreme Court's recent Trump v. Hawaii decision is dicta. So says the 11th Circuit in footnote 5. Their words, not mine. I would never. And that is via the Department of State. Next up is Jacko v. Garland, published by the Fifth Circuit on October 27th, 2021. This case is about domestic violence-type asylum claims and related relief. Ms. Jacko and her minor child are asylum seekers from Honduras. Ms. Jacko fled because her partner in Honduras raped and abused her terribly and threatened to murder her. He didn't stop when she obtained restraining orders. The violence continued, and her partner threatened to kill her if she didn't give up their daughter. She fled for the United States instead with her daughter. Ms. Jacko now has a new partner and a new child in the United States, and additionally fears her old partner in Honduras for this additional reason. She applied for asylum and related relief in immigration court shortly after entering the U.S. after being placed in removal proceedings. The immigration judge denied relief, holding that even though matter of ARCG governed at the time Ms. Jacko filed her application in immigration court, Ms. Jacko's asserted particular social group was different. Because unlike Miss ARCG, Miss Jacko wasn't married to her partner. Then on appeal, Attorney General Sessions vacated matter of ARCG in matter of AB, so it all got pretty rough for Miss Jacko's claims for a couple of years there. The BIA affirmed and Miss Jacko was represented below, but she filed this petition for review in the Fifth Circuit pro se. And, despite matter of AB no longer being good law, the Fifth Circuit affirmed the BIA. Preliminarily, the Fifth Circuit held that the BIA did not err in refusing to consider the particular social groups that Ms. Jacko made for the first time on appeal. Agreeing with the BIA's 2018 decision in matter of WYC and HOB, the Fifth Circuit held that while the BIA, quote, has discretion to entertain novel particular social group claims, it does not commit reversible error by declining to do so, end quote. So go to town on the particular social groups that you assert before the IJ, everybody. That therefore leaves the particular social group, quote, Honduran women unable to leave their domestic relationships, end quote. Obviously, that's similar to the particular social group in matter of ARCG. 
the Fifth Circuit recognized that Attorney General Garland vacated the ABs and that matter of ARCG now governed again, meaning that the group, quote, married women in Guatemala who are unable to leave their relationship, end quote, is cognizable under immigration law again. But the Fifth Circuit then went on to explain why its 2019 decision in Gonzalez-Veliz v. Barr, which had relied on the ABs to reject a similar particular social group, still governed, notwithstanding Attorney General Garland's vacation of the matters of AB. In essence, the Fifth Circuit believes matter of ARCG is not in keeping with matter of MEG and matter of WGR. So many letters with these cases. And that matter of ARCG impermissibly defined the particular social group circularly by the fact that the individuals in the group being defined are subject to persecution. Sounds a lot like Jeff Sessions in Matter of AB. And indeed, the Fifth Circuit states as much, but it describes its decision in Gonzalez-Feliz not as having deferred to Matter of AB under Chevron, which would then likely fatally undermine Gonzalez-Feliz now that AB no longer exists. But rather, it describes Gonzalez-Feliz as merely agreeing with the logic of Matter of AB. And that agreement on logic remains even if Matter of AB does not. In the alternative, even if the Fifth Circuit were to conduct a Chevron analysis regarding matter of ARCG, it would hold that the decision fails Chevron Step 2. Matter of ARCG is unreasonable because, for example, the particular social group is circularly defined by the harm, the non-citizen's, quote, inability to leave, end quote. Finally, the Fifth Circuit held, alternatively again, that Ms. Jacko's particular social group wasn't cognizable even under matter of ARCG, for a variety of reasons, not least of which because Ms. Jacko, unlike the group in matter of ARCG, was not married. All of that being said, the Fifth Circuit made expressly clear that, quote, we do not hold that women who have suffered from domestic violence are categorically precluded from membership in a particular social group, end quote. They just need to show that their group is distinct, quote, without reference to the very persecution from which its members flee, end quote. Kind of like the alternative particular social groups that Ms. Jacko tried to assert, but which the BIA declined to consider. Ms. Jacko therefore lost her case. Let's talk a bit more. The term particular social group really is one of the quintessential ambiguous phrases to which circuits must defer to the BIA's reasonable interpretation under Chevron. So one might be confused as to how the Fifth Circuit can avoid matter of ARCG without conducting a Chevron analysis, as the bulk of this decision does. The answer again, my friends, appears to be because the Fifth Circuit believes that matter of MEVG and WGR provide the particular social group frameworks to which it must defer or not defer. That is, immutability, particularity, and social distinction, all that stuff. While matter of ARCG is merely applying those decisions. The Fifth Circuit would appear to believe that Chevron is not implicated when the BIA applies its prior standard to a new factual scenario. Chevron only applies to the standard itself. Or at least that's one way to square the first half of this decision. If one concedes, as most circuits seem poised to do, that a particular social group can't be defined by the risk of harm to the applicant, the dispute in cases like this might come down to whether the concept of being, quote, unable to leave, end quote, does in fact describe a risk of harm, rather than, say, an identifiable characteristic that is in fact socially distinct 
in a given society. That might be the realm to argue against holding such as this in other circuits. And that is Jacko v. Garland. Next is Pineda Terrell v. Garland, published by the Seventh Circuit on October 27, 2021. This case is about withholding of removal and protection under the Convention Against Torture. Mr. Pineda Terrell is from Honduras, entered the U.S. unlawfully in 2007, and was ultimately removed. He entered without authorization in 2019, and the prior order of removal was reinstated. Mr. Pineda Terrell, however, passed his reasonable fear interview, and so he was placed in withholding-only proceedings before an immigration judge. In those proceedings, Mr. Pineda Terrell testified that upon his return to Honduras in 2017, armed men, quote, dressed in police uniforms and driving a police vehicle, end quote, dare I say police, robbed him and demanded future payments, believing that he had money due to his 10 years living in the United States. They said they'd kill him if he didn't pay. They later came to the coffee farm that he owned looking for him, and they killed two of his cousins. He believes that actually some of these people, including the cousin killers, currently live in the United States. Interesting twist. He moved in Honduras, but quote, the armed mafia men, end quote, came to his new apartment, and so he fled for the United States again. That's what led to the reinstatement and the withholding-only proceedings, where he represented himself. The immigration judge and the BIA denied, and the Seventh Circuit affirmed. So kind of like the Fifth Circuit decision we just discussed, Mr. Pineda Terrell, who did not have an attorney before the IJ but who got one before the BIA, asserted a new particular social group before the BIA, his status as a landowner in Honduras. The BIA declined to consider this new particular social group for the first time on appeal, and the Seventh Circuit held that that was an error. Now, Mr. Pineda Terrell argued that the Seventh Circuit should adopt a rule for pro se respondents at the IJ level, similar to the Fourth Circuit's comprehensive standard from Quintero v. Garland, discussed on episode 57 of the podcast, requiring an IJ to really get into the nitty-gritty of a case and develop the record for particular social groups where non-citizens lack attorneys. This Seventh Circuit panel doesn't appear to have much appetite for that, but they avoided the issue altogether by relying on the fact that Mr. Pineda Terrell never even suggested that he was targeted below because he owned a coffee farm, but rather argued entirely that a different particular social group was the sole reason for the harm that he suffered, his status as someone who had lived in the United States before. Quote, Therefore, adopting the Fourth Circuit's rule would not change the results in Pineda Terrell's case. End quote. Not nothing, though, Seventh Circuit practitioners. The Seventh Circuit is dipping its toes into Quintero v. Garland ever so slightly. Turning then to Convention Against Torture Protection, the Seventh Circuit held that the IJ and the BIA properly considered all factors, including the fact that the cousins were murdered. The Seventh Circuit then held that the events don't compel a cat grant because Mr. Pineda Terrell, quote, offers only his own speculation that these murders occurred at the hands of, or with the acquiescence of, government officials, end quote, as the cat requires. The Seventh Circuit wants more evidence. Plus, quote, according to Mr. Pineda Terrell, the killers are now in the United States. Mr. Pineda Terrell cannot establish a substantial risk of torture in Honduras by armed men who are no longer there, end quote. 
Mr. Pineda Terrell therefore lost his case. Godspeed to you, sir. And that is Pineda Terrell v. Garland. Continuing on with the rough week for asylum seekers in the 7th, say that five times fast, we have Mabuniza v. Garland, published by the 7th Circuit on October 28, 2021. Mr. Mabuniza is from the Democratic Republic of Congo, or DRC, and entered the U.S. as a refugee in 2000. But he messed up bad, and he was convicted of some crimes that made him removable about 10 years later. Once placed in removal proceedings, the immigration judge determined that his convictions barred him from all forms of relief and protection except for deferral of removal under the Convention Against Torture, which no one can ever be barred from. The power of the treaty. In support of his claim, Mr. Mabuniza stated that he was a member of the Tutsi ethnic group, the group subjected to genocide in neighboring Rwanda in the 1990s, and that he would be targeted again if deported to the DRC. Plus, he claimed that he'd be viewed as a political traitor because he had lived in the United States and he and his family had been featured in a newspaper article about refugees when they first came here in the early 2000s. And I mean, yeah, the guy was a refugee. And so the IJ held that yes, 20 years ago, Mr. Mamuniza likely suffered torture and likely warranted Convention Against Torture protection. But the IJ and the BIA held that today, his fears were just speculative and so they denied him cat deferral. The Seventh Circuit affirmed. Unlike with past persecution, past torture doesn't necessarily equate to a cat grant. It's just a factor for IJs to consider. And here, actually, Mr. Mamuniza, quote, only challenges the IJ's conclusion that he failed to show he would be tortured because of his status as a recent deportee who sought asylum abroad, end quote. So the Tutsi stuff wasn't at issue before the Seventh Circuit. First, the Seventh Circuit held that the IJ did properly consider an article showing that recent deportees are sometimes detained in the DRC, but that Mr. Mamuniza had failed to show why he believed that he'd be one of them, or why he believed that his detention would rise to the level of torture, instead of merely, say, temporary detention. The Seventh Circuit then went on to agree with the BIA's 2018 decision in matter of JRGP, wherein the BIA held that mere, quote, abusive or squalid conditions, end quote, in prison are not torture unless the applicant can show that authorities create or allow those conditions with the specific intent to torture. Rough standard. Finally, even assuming that the DRC is plagued by, quote, mass human rights violations, end quote, Mr. Mabuniza, quote, still must show that he personally faces a substantial risk of torture, end quote. He did not do so here. Finally, the Seventh Circuit affirmed denial of Mr. Mabuniza's motion to reconsider, mainly because he had simply, according to the court, quote, raised a legal argument that could have been raised earlier and reiterated arguments previously considered and rejected, end quote. That's not what motions to reconsider are for. Mr. Mabuniza, therefore, did not succeed in this case and will be removed to the Congo if the U.S. is actually removing individuals to the Congo. And that is Mabuniza v. Garland. Finally, we have Arriaga Bravo v. Attorney General of the U.S., published by the Third Circuit on October 28, 2021. 
After all those decisions bad for non-citizens on the issue, let's end with a good one on cat protection and factual findings. But it's a difficult one. Miss Bravo is a 31-year-old woman from Guatemala who entered the United States in May 2016. Remember May 2016? When Hillary Clinton was about to become president? After being placed in removal proceedings, Miss Bravo filed for asylum and related relief, claiming to fear sexual violence from the powerful Mara 18 gang. See, her older sister had been raped by gang members at only 15 years old, and never reported it because the police station was four hours away. The family moved towns, but then her younger sister was raped. They filed a report, but police never investigated. The rapist family offered a bribe, but Miss Bravo's mother turned it down and reported that, too, to police, to no effect. The family moved again, where Miss Bravo's friend was raped by multiple men. Miss Bravo herself was solicited for sex, and then in early 2016, Mara 18 members demanded that she become a gang member's girlfriend. She refused and began to receive threatening texts. Finally, one day, two gang members grabbed her off the street, put a knife to her neck, and threatened to kill her unless she became the Mara's girlfriend. She fled for the U.S. shortly thereafter. The immigration judge issued a 24-page written decision denying asylum and withholding of removal under the INA, but granting cat protection. The IJ found the gender-based particular social groups not particular enough, and didn't believe the harm that Ms. Bravo had suffered qualified as past persecution, but granted Convention Against Torture protection, holding that she had shown she'd more likely than not be raped or killed by Mara 18 members if returned to Guatemala. The IJ further found that the Guatemalan government would acquiesce or would be willfully blind, based largely on their failure to do anything when her family was harmed and raped in the past. DHS appealed, and the BIA overturned the IJ, stating that it was, quote, unable to agree with the immigration judge's predictive finding, end quote, of torture, thereby setting the stage for Ms. Bravo's removal to Guatemala. The Third Circuit did not like that, and reversed. And that is mainly because when it comes to cat protection, and honestly all of their findings of fact, the BIA, quote, in reviewing the IJ's decision, must defer to the IJ's factual findings unless they are clearly erroneous, end quote. Now true, whether someone will be tortured in the future is a mixed question of law and fact. But here, what the BIA appeared to take issue with was the IJ's weighing of evidence as to the likelihood of future torture, and it would appear that that is a finding of fact subject to clear error review. The BIA can't simply disagree with and overturn an IJ on that issue unless the IJ has made a quote, obvious, plain, gross, significant, or manifest error or miscalculation, end quote. Not the case here. So too on the issue of government acquiescence. The IJ's finding that the Guatemalan government would be, at a minimum, willfully blind to Ms. Bravo's more likely than not rape or murder by Mara 18 members was supported by her family and friends' past experience and the Guatemalan country condition evidence. Indeed, for all you Guatemalan asylum advocates, quote, Statistics continue to show one woman killed every 12 hours and a new case of sexual violence reported every 46 minutes, end quote. And notwithstanding a law to prevent all of that, quote, the government's efforts to prosecute these crimes remains poor, end quote. Sufficient for cat protection here. Again, the BIA couldn't overturn that IJ's factual finding here simply by disagreeing with the IJ on how the IJ weighed the evidence. 
The BIA needed to find that the IJ was clearly erroneous and explain why. Couldn't do it here, so the BIA erred. The Third Circuit therefore remanded, quote, with instructions to reinstate the IJ's opinion, end quote. Well done, Brett A. Tarver and Anthony C. Vale for petitioner. And that is Ariago Bravo, the Attorney General of the U.S. So there you have it. You're all caught up with the past week's published immigration cases. I'm Kevin A. Gregg, a partner with the law firm Kurzban, Kurzban, Tetzeli, and Pratt, and this has been another episode of Immigration Review. Thank you for listening, and I hope you enjoyed it. If you did, please share it with a friend and rate and review us. Each review helps new listeners find the show. And of course, subscribe to Immigration Review wherever you get your podcasts. If you like what we do and want to become a patron of the show, please check out our Patreon page at www.patreon.com forward slash immigration review, or click on the link in the show notes. And if you're interested in an official Immigration Review CLE certificate for five credit hours, email me at kgreg at kktplaw.com with your full name and the episode numbers for the 10 shows you've listened to. Also, feel free to email me with questions, comments, or anything at all. And follow the show on Instagram and Facebook, at Immigration Review, and send us a tweet, at ImReview, that's I-M-M Review. I'll be back next Monday for a brand new discussion. Until then, I'm Kevin A. Gregg, bringing you the Immigration Review. Thank you.